this is part one of a two-part series. Welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Sarah Hoffman, the public relations specialist for the ACFE, and today we are joined by Jeffrey Robinson, the best-selling author of 30 books and an anti-money laundering expert. I wanted to talk to you, Jeffrey, because the Panama Papers are making big headlines right now, but you actually first discovered the law firm at the center of all of this, <laughs> Masak Fonseca, back in 2003, correct? Well, actually, earlier than that, I, I mean, I'm laughing. It was about 1998. I'll tell you what happened. We, uh, I wrote a book called The Laundry Men, which he said immodestly is still the uh, definitive book on money laundering. And this was, uh, this was in the mid-'90s. In about 1998 or so, we were doing a television version of The Laundry Men for a French and German company, and we would do it in French and German, and then we would also do it in, Eng- in English so that it could be seen in America. And it was called uh, The Laundry Men. And at one point, I got, went into a phone booth. That shows you how long ago this was. There were phone booths. Uh, and in London, picked up the phone and, and dialed a company formation agent uh, and said to the person who answered the phone, I said, I've got a, a, a really serious problem, and I hope you can help me out. I said, I've got a rather large sum of money that I do not want to bring into Britain because it will be taxable. Um, that's understandable. Uh, but I also don't want the Americans to find out about it. How can I hide this money? I don't know how to do that, but I, I, I'm asking you for your help. And she said, Nui. I said, what? She said, Nui. I said, I don't know what a Nui is. She said, Nui, N-I-U-E. Nui is a, is a rock out in the middle of the Pacific, 2,200 miles from New Zealand. It's a New Zealand protectorate, in fact. And uh, this is not a, a beautiful Pacific desert island. These people don't even have a beach. This is a rock, and they have very little sources of, of income. They discovered the Japanese sex lines at one point and did a deal with some sleazebags in Japan where when a guy in Japan called a sex line to talk dirty to some Japanese woman, the call got rooted through Nui and then back to Japan so that they were paying these long-distance rates, and the Nuians were getting a cut of that. And a couple of lawyers from Panama heard about this and said, oh, what a neat place. And they went to Nui and said, you know what, we're going to set you up in the offshore world. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to sell, and we're going to show you how to do it, banks. They said, well, we don't have any room for a bank. We're a rock. They said, no, 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 no. You don't need four walls and a roof. You need a plaque to put on a door. You're going to sell a piece of paper, and you're going to sell a banking license. And you're also going to sell... Shell companies. So for a thousand bucks, you could buy a Nuian shell company, and for ten thousand, you could buy a bank registered in Nui, you know, the, the third national bank of uh, Nui. And once you had your shell company and your bank, you could then get yourself into the international banking system. Now, this was suspect stuff, and it really stank. But they started selling banks to Russians. <laughs> this is uh, even worse. And these shell companies were going to people like Colombian drug traffickers. What then happens is I become fascinated with Nui, and I try to figure out who these lawyers are. And surprise, surprise, it turns out to be Mr. Masak and Fonseca. So I start exposing them. I mean, being a good, solid investigative journalist, I'm looking at these guys and trying to figure out how they operate and and why they're so dangerous. Uh, I wrote about them, and I uh, mentioned them, and uh, I was doing The Sink, I think. Uh, the, the sequel to Laundry Mode was a book called The Merger, and I wrote extensively about Nui, 
And then in the sink, which is my book about the offshore world, I was doing a lot of interviews, and including one at the FBI with a very senior manager. And I sat down with him for a couple of hours, and we were talking about drug trafficking in the offshore world and, and how these phony companies helped move money to keep these drug trafficking businesses alive. And at the end of the meeting, I said to him, by the way, have you ever heard of Nui? And he said, no, I haven't. And I took a piece of paper, and I wrote down the names Mossack and Fonseca. And I handed it to him. I said, these guys. He shrugged and took the piece of paper. Ten days later, I was living in London at the time. Ten days later, I get a phone call one evening, and he says, I want you to know we take these things seriously. I said, what things? He says, those two names you gave me. I said, oh, really? He said, yes. And then he used a term I'd never heard before, so I'll never forget it. He said, we have multiple areas of interest in those men. So I figured, wow, you know, the FBI, I've now gotten it into the right hands. Well, 9-11, you know, America had its own concerns. The FBI had its own concerns. And like a lot of these things, it just became a, a low priority. Now, when this scandal broke, so this is 18 years before the Panama Papers, when this thing broke, I immediately gave shout to my old friend in the FBI, now retired. I said, did you see any names you remembered? He said, what are you talking about? I said, you see the names of the lawyers in Panama? He said, oh my, oh yes, oh I remember, wow. I said, whatever happened? He said, you know, 9-11 got in the way and, and we had other priorities and it just sort of fell by the wayside. I then made a statement on a secure uh, forum that I'm party to, which is a financial intelligence forum. I, and I told the story about having taken these names to the FBI, and I said, I certainly hope whoever's in the office, this big office that this guy used to have, will take a look at this. That afternoon, I get an email with just a name and a phone number, no message at all. <laughs> and I picked up the phone, and I called, and it's the guy sitting in the big office that this old guy used to have at the J. Edgar Hoover building. And he said, tell me the story. And I did. He said, this is all very interesting. Thank you very much. We may owe you a big favor. And now, so it's in, it's in somebody else's hands now. And I'll tell you what's so interesting about this. You know that the currency of Panama, the national currency, are U.S. dollars. It is against the law to commit a crime anywhere in the world with U.S. dollars. And the U.S. government claims jurisdiction. So if you're money laundering or if you're committing wire fraud, if you're doing anything with U.S. currency, U.S. government can intervene. I think now, finally, the U.S. authorities are looking at Panama in general, and these guys specifically, to see what crimes are being committed with U.S. currency, and they will claim jurisdiction. This story is going to run for a very, very long time. Fascinating. With this story, a lot of people have been focusing on the fact that this is ultimately kind of a tax avoidance scheme. Um, you've mentioned before that with the tax avoidance, you think that it's kind of just a distraction. It's more of a red herring. What do you think that this leak actually is exposing in that case? It, you know, they always say that when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. Well, the tide's gone out. And the tax evasion part of this, where you've got the prime minister of Iceland and the president of uh, uh, some of the former Soviet republics and people in the Middle East and all these people avoiding taxes. And who cares? Actually, who cares? It's a distraction because 
the mechanisms that they were selling and the, the mechanisms in place in Panama are not about tax evasion. The tax evasion side of this is a total distraction. Uh, if uh, if uh, the Emir of Kuwait's not paying his taxes, who cares? I mean, and he's not. I mean, it's 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 just not the way these things work in that part of the world. So you see a lot of the a lot of people from the Middle East uh, listed. If the uh, president of the Ukraine or the president of one of the former Soviet republics is stealing money from the government, that's different. Uh, if the president of Iceland or the prime minister of Iceland is not paying his taxes, that's another story. But when you're dealing with politically exposed persons, they have a special category. And when you look down the list of all these names, most of them are politically exposed persons. I mean, former prime minister of Italy, Berlusconi, who's a wealthy man anyway. But as soon as you have a political connection, the rules change. Anybody who is politically exposed or has access to uh, a nation's money or their family or their close associates have to be looked at in a special way. The fact that a lot of these people have been uncovered says to me that the dumb ones, because the smart ones who are really into political corruption aren't going to do it that way. They're not going to say, gee, I'm the president of such and such a country. I need to open a bank account so I can move my national funds uh, to uh, Panama or to Switzerland or to someplace else. They're not going to do it that way. I, I covered a story uh, years ago concerning Mr. Gaddafi and Mr. Mubarak. Now, both of them were earning very little money. In fact, I, I found out because I called Egypt and, and got the word that Mubarak's official salary was somewhere around $11,000 a year. His official worth was, I don't know, I think it was $9 billion or it might have been $29 billion. Now, you have to be a very dedicated saver when you're earning $11,000 a year to amass $9 billion or $29 billion or $99 billion. You know, it's impossible. What Gaddafi and Mubarak both did, because they are politically exposed, was send their sons to London, to the city of London, to work in city banks and help them move the money through London into the rest of the world. Some of it ended up in Dubai. Some of it ended up in Venezuela, uh, where Gaddafi was being protected. I mean, they're very sophisticated ways, and their name never shows up on any of the paperwork. It's all corporations. Uh, if you look at, and I documented it in, in one of the books, if you look at uh, Saddam Hussein's money laundering operations, they were all companies in, in, in Europe doing all sorts of things without his name on it. And they were run by people who were in Europe, whose families were still being held prisoner in Iraq, so that if they stole the money, the family was going to die. <laughs> it's, this, this, this is big-time stuff. So when you talk about tax evasion... That's not what this is all about. If you look, for instance, uh, at, at Panama and the specifics of Panama, the majority of money laundering activity there is, is narcotics-related. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's goods. You know, they have a border with Colombia, so that, that should tell you everything. But it's, it's the transshipment and the smuggling of goods, and it's the counterfeit goods that come in and out of the free zone the, in Cologne, the canal, free zone. That is the world's largest pawn shop fence. It is filled with crap that is illegal, illicit, smuggled, counterfeit. And all of that represents money somewhere. That money's got to go someplace. 
So what do the company formation agents in Panama do is they help people form companies and hide that money. Obviously, this is being tied to political corruption like you were just explaining, but shell companies can be used for legitimate reasons, such as protecting intellectual property rights. Do you think that in the future, after a leak like this, we're going to see a way for people to still use shell companies for legitimate reasons while being able to stop them for using it for these laundering purposes? Or is it kind of all or nothing with shell companies? Well, no, because there are shell companies and there are shell companies. There's a lot of different flavors. I have been looking for a long time at Allen Stanford guy from Texas who was the uh, biggest Ponzi operator short of Madoff and uh, ran havoc in in Antigua with the help of the then Prime Minister. Uh, When I wrote Sink, I called a very high official in Antigua and basically he was the foreign minister, a very close friend of the Byrd family. He was then Prime Minister, the son of the first Prime Minister. And uh, they, did not, they did not have a foreign minister, but this guy acted in that ambassadorial status. And I said to him, uh, bear a share companies. Now, a bear a share company is a shell company that has a piece of paper that shows ownership. So it's called Acme Trading of Antigua. Pick a name. And the company formation agent gives you the piece of paper. And you put it in your pocket and you own that company. I say to you, gee, I've always wanted to buy a shell company in Antigua. Would you sell me yours? And you say, sure. Give me 10 bucks. Here's the piece of paper. I have the paper in my pocket. I bear it. I now own the company. So that nobody, not even the company formation agent in Antigua, nobody knows who owns that company. So I said to this guy, what about these phony bearer share operations? He said, we're ending them. After 9-11, we got very scared that bin Laden might have money in, in Antigua. We didn't want that. We're ending the bearer shares. I said, well, that's great. How are you doing that? He says, we're calling everybody. We're sending notices to everybody who owns one to say it's no longer valid. I said, how do you know who owns it? The whole idea of the bearer share is that you don't know. We couldn't answer that question. Now, bearer share companies should not be allowed. They should be illegal because they're completely anonymous. Panama still sells bearer share companies. They're very big on bearer share companies. Because with a bearish share company, you can open a bank account. And if you know how to do it, and it's not a complicated process, you can move a lot of money through a lot of different shell companies. Now, you spoke about legal shell companies. Absolutely. Uh, there are all sorts of tax avoidance schemes that the governments allow, uh, transfer pricing being one of them. And you can move money through an offshore company and not have to bring it into the country and pay the taxes, and you can still live off of that. But for the most part, it's the anonymity and it's the lack of transparency that makes the dangerous situation, that creates a dangerous situation, like the Masek Fonseca operation. They're, they're selling duck blinds is what they're doing. They're saying no one will find you. So if you're talking about a shell company that hides the beneficial owner of the money, yes, it should be stopped. If you're talking about a shell company where the beneficial owner is known, Well, what's the difference? I mean, film financing, for instance, is frequently done offshore for tax reasons. It's called Superman 36 uh, of the Caymans, and everybody knows who owns it, and everybody knows what's going on, and and that's fine. But And holding intellectual property rights, another good example. It's the anonymity and the duck blinds. These become 
offshore economic bombs that will blow up the legitimate economy. And I've called Masek and Fonseca offshore bomb makers because that's exactly the product they were selling. Do you think that with a leak like this then that it will kind of start a reaction of those other – the people selling these duck blinds, these bearer shares, the countries selling that, are they going to start to try and turn legitimate like Antigua? Antigua is now selling bearer share companies again. And Antigua, I mean, I was invited uh, by the prime minister of Antigua to give a speech to a high-level governmental uh, congress in Antigua of people all around the Caribbean. And I praised him, the the, the man who took over from, from Bird. I praised him for doing this because the Stanford thing had left Antigua in shatters. Their reputation was absolutely devastated. And I said, you can't afford another Stanford. You know, I understand that you want to have this clean business of selling companies, but they've got to be legitimate companies, and you can't sell citizenship. And they're doing that now, too. A lot of that's happening in the the islands. They will sell you citizenship. Uh, They call it economic citizenship. And I'm embarrassed to say the United States does it as well. I mean, this should not be done. You shouldn't be able to buy your way into a country just because you've got the money to do it, because a lot of people with that kind of money will do it for nefarious reasons. And I, and I said to them there, uh, you, you've got to switch it around and do this legitimately. And in the island of Guernsey, my friend Jeff Rowland was the attorney general and then the deputy bailiff and then the bailiff, which is like being the president or prime minister. And he, he's a, a proud Guernseyan who said, uh, we've got all this offshore insurance business, and it's pretty uh, strange, a lot of this, and there's a lot of shenanigans going on. And it was back in about 1998, 9, 2000, somewhere in there, when the district attorney's office of New York went to him and said, we're looking at a, at a company. Will you tell us if this company is legitimate or not? And Rowan said, as a matter of fact, I will. That's a very good idea. We will cooperate. And he announced, from now on, this government will cooperate with any legitimate law enforcement request. So if you've got dirty money in Guernsey, you better get it out, because we'll, we'll turn you in. <laughs> and what he did through legislation and this new attitude was turn Guernsey into a very successful offshore, comp- offshore operation, where people could say... You don't have to worry. It's a Guernsey company. We have legitimacy because we're not allowed to fool around. And if we do, they'll arrest us or they'll turn us over to the British authorities or the U.S. authorities or any other authority. They've cleaned it up and they've given a certain status to a Guernsey corporation because it is absolutely white hat. Now, I said to the Prime Minister of Antigua, that's what you need to do. That's how you can earn more money because Roland said to me, we earn more money as an offshore entity, as a white hat offshore entity, than we ever did with dirty money. We're way ahead of the game. And that's the kind of thing that, that should be done throughout the Caribbean. But it won't be. And it won't be for the very simple reason, which gets back to your original question there. You know, can it be stopped? And the answer is, it can be. Will it be? No, it won't be. Because the so-called gatekeepers, the bankers, lawyers, accountants, company formation agents, and brokers, guys like Massa and Fonseca, are, who could stop it because they know how it works, are making fortunes by doing it. I mean, 
there is something called the OECD, and there's something called the FATF, which is the Financial Action Task Force, and there's something called the IMF, you know, the International Monetary Fund, and the, the World Bank, and all of these people in the early 2000s condemned Panama as being a cesspool, an absolute cesspool, not only of dirty money and all of these phony corporations and the phony banks, but also the canal zone, it all feeds together. This is all part of the organism. And they were roundly condemned as being non-cooperative. So what did Panama do is they took the, uh, here I go, here, here, I'm, I'm going to shock everybody. They took the street corner hooker and they bought her a bright new white wedding dress. And they said, oh, look, isn't this nice? We've changed. No, they put a hooker in a wedding dress. That's all they did. <laughs> I probably could have been more polite and said if they gave it a fresh coat of paint. Like what Switzerland does. This is all nonsense. And people are being distracted by this whole idea of tax avoidance and tax evasion when what they should be looking at is the fact that these are cesspools of dirty money. And this dirty money feeds organized crime, feeds criminal activity. Dirty money is the lifeblood of the drug traffickers, of extortionists, of organized criminal uh, groups like the, the, the various mafias, of fraudsters. It's all the same. As long as they can have the cash flow and the reinvestment in their business, they will flourish. And as Panama and Switzerland and other places, the Caymans, other places like this that are feeding into this frenzy of cash flow and reinvestment, they are helping to protect criminals. And I think it really should be stopped. And hopefully, because if the FBI starts looking into it, U.S. dollars being involved, hopefully they will crack down and say enough. I have my doubts. This concludes the first portion of this two-part podcast. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for joining us. You can find the second portion of this podcast and all podcasts at acfe.com slash podcasts or in the iTunes store. Thank you so much for listening.